Hebrews. You can go ahead and turn to uh, Hebrews. You got them. Uh, you can turn there. Get them on your phone. We're going to be in. Uh, look at about three passages a day. The first one we're going to look at is out of Hebrews chapter six. As we come to the end teaching part of this series on distinctives, what it means to actually be a follower of Christ. I'm excited next week, next Sunday, we're actually going to have some uh, stories and testimonies from some of our New City family members about how these distinctives have played out in their life. Like how has peace interacted in life? What, what does it mean to follow Christ and worship him? And so we're going to actually hear stories, not just from Scripture, as important as that is, as we've seen these play out in history, but we're also going to see how we've seen these play out in our own lives. So I want to encourage you to be here next week. Don't miss it. It's a great way that we usually sometimes wrap up a series to talk about how it impacts our lives Personally, but we're coming to this end of this teaching time where we've been talking about these internal experiences and these external expressions of what it means to follow Christ. That Christ isn't being a Christian, a Christ follower is not just this label we wear, it's not just this new exterior, a new moral code to live by. It is actually this complete transformation of who we are. And we talked about love and how when we truly experience love, it leads us to worship. When we experience forgiveness, it leads us to serve and be generous with others. And when we experience peace and no fear that comes with peace, we're able to be compassionate people. And these are elements in our lives as followers of Christ that continually feed and expand on one another. So it's not like that I figure out love one day and like, okay, I've got all the love I need, so I'm done. And like, I've got that part filled up. And now if I can just fill up the part of forgiveness that I need in my life, and now the part of peace, then I'll be done. These, as one grows, the other, it creates room for the others. And these are constantly expanding ideas. It's like a seesaw back and forth. We experience one and then it shows up in our life. And we experience more, it shows up in our life again. We, we learn to forgive at deeper levels than we've ever been able to. And it just is a seesaw effect in our life. And so I want to spend just a couple minutes laying the groundwork for where we're going to go today by recapturing some of the thoughts that go along with these. When we think about love, I want you to think for a minute that when you understand that you are fully loved by God, it is this deep foundational bedrock for your soul, is that you are completely loved, period. For who you are, the way God created you, are love. That, that foundation is the bedrock for who we are. It's not dependent on our mood. It's not dependent upon our response or even our desire to be loved. God loves us. And when we experience this, it begins to brew up in our soul, and it can't help but impact who we are and how we treat other people and even how we view God. And as that brews up, I can't help but worship. I can't help but express my love to God and my love for other people. It becomes a natural part of what it's the seesaw, right? I'm loved. It shows up as worship. It's just natural how that flows out. But God just didn't just love us when we were at our best. The next thing we talked about is that he loved us at our worst and that we needed forgiveness. And God's forgiveness came in the midst of our deepest rebellion against him. It came at the moment where we were expressing actually the most hatred toward him. Not when we were at our best, but at our very worst, he showed us forgiveness. And this is an experience through this immeasurable forgiveness of God. I love the idea that God's forgiveness is immeasurable. You can't measure it. It's unfathomable. 
The more I use it, it doesn't mean that there's less of it from coming from God. The more I'm in need of forgiveness, it does not drain God's tank. There's not at this day that I'm going to do something that finally God's forgiveness of my soul runs out. That his tank is empty and I'm without hope. That's not how it works. Actually, the more I draw off of it, the, it just stays the same. God's forgiveness is immeasurable. No matter what I have done, no matter what sin has overcome me, no matter how many times I fail, no matter how big of a charge I run up against God's forgiveness, it is sufficient. And it's not just sufficient for you and me, it's sufficient for all of humanity as well. He's got enough forgiveness to go for everyone. And this forgiveness, when it wells up in our life, it shows itself. The seesaw effect here is this. It begins to show in how we treat others through generosity and serving. As we realize what God has done for us, we begin to say, what can we do for others? This is why I have the ability to forgive. I can forgive others because God has forgiven me. If I don't truly experience the forgiveness of God, it is impossible for me to truly forgive you. So as I experience God's forgiveness, generosity and service bubble up in my life. It's the seesaw back and forth. And then right in the midst of this love and forgiveness, we are then overwhelmed with a peace that passes understanding. Michael talked about this last week, the peace that comes into our soul. No circumstances can destroy our faith. No hardship becomes too hard to handle. Peace is knowing that God has not only gone before you, but he is going with me wherever I go. Whatever circumstance I'm facing, he is there. This peace is like a light in the darkness. It's like water in the desert. It is like warmth in the winter. It is like cool in the summer. It refreshes, sustains, and it gives hope. And as we experience this seesaw of peace, what shows up in our life is what we talked about as compassion. We start wanting to be peace in other people's lives. We find things that are happening in their life, and we don't just feel bad for them. We actually go and interject ourselves in their life and bring hope. And bring compassion. And we talked about how compassion is empathy plus opportunity plus response. It's not just feeling bad for someone. Peace doesn't allow us to. As we experience peace, we are then compelled to go and be peace in other people's lives. And so, again, it's this seesaw effect back and forth. And it boils down to this. As we experience the love, forgiveness, and peace of God in our life, we literally, as it expresses out, we become contagious. We, we become these contagious followers of Jesus that as we've experienced this love, forgiveness, and peace, as people come into our lives, they begin to experience it as well. I, I typically don't want to be around somebody who's contagious, right? I mean, if you meet somebody, they say, oh, I've been sick this week. I'm not feeling well. Like, I typically take two steps back. You know, I'm like, okay, that's great. I mean, why are you here? Why are you around me kind of deal? We, we, that's not the type of person we typically are drawn to. But think about somebody who has a contagious personality, right? Somebody who just, when you're around them, man, they're happy, and their happiness just spills over into your life. And they just walk with joy. They're positive. They're they're opportunistic. They're optimistic about life, man. They just, you just like being around them, right? But aren't there people that are also kind of contagious the other way? Like every time you're around them, you're just like, oh. Like they just drain the joy out of you sometimes. They just draw it out of you. And that's what I'm talking about. These personalities, this type of life, as we live a life of peace and love and grace and hope and forgiveness, it impacts the lives of those around us. 
And what I want us to do today is to talk about these last two aspects, very tangible ways that God gives us to identify ourselves with what it means to be a follower of Christ and to live out of love and forgiveness and peace. Because the truth is this. I I love this good news. I love being around people who live out of this good news. But the truth is, there's sometimes I'm not this. There's sometimes I fail miserably at this. And it's not just occasionally, sometimes in my life, it is regularly that I forget that I am loved, that I forget that I am forgiven, and I forget that God gives me peace. I look for love in other places. I like I think that God can't forgive me this time. I let circumstances become the defining aspect of my life instead of God's peace. And like I said, this just doesn't happen on a rare occasion. To be honest, sometimes it happens on a daily basis. Sometimes the furthest thing from my mind is worshiping God and giving to others. Sometimes I'm consumed with pride, greed, lust, anger, bitterness. I make excuses. I settle for less than God wants for me, and then I blame him for not being enough for me. I do all this for one simple reason. It's because I forget what he has done. I put it out of my mind. I have a bad memory when it comes to God's faithfulness and goodness. And I think if we're honest here, I'm probably not the only one here with a bad memory when it comes to God's faithfulness and goodness. We probably all struggle with that at times. And it's not that we just forget that God exists or we act like he's not there. We make the mistake of pulling up the anchors of our soul from the deep foundations of God's goodness and God's grace, and we put them in the shallow water of circumstances, circumstantial love, and the need to be accepted by other people. We pull our anchors up from God's deep foundations. And that causes us to wonder. And we forget what it says here in Hebrews 6. I want to read this passage because it is a great reminder of how we are challenged to drop some anchors of our soul deep into God's goodness. Look at Hebrews 6, verses 17 through 20, and it says this. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise, the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath. Let me explain verse 17 right quick because it's we're coming in. What he's basically saying is like God had already made a covenant with the people of Israel, but he wanted to expand that covenant to all of humanity. He wanted to make it this bigger oath. And so as he did this, he wanted to do it, and he guaranteed it with an oath. So what God did here is he's saying, look, your first anchor is that I am God. The second anchor is that I am promising to do this. This, all that I offer you, this forgiveness, this love, this peace, is not something you have to earn. I am giving it to you because I am God, and I'm swearing by myself. I'm making an oath by the highest authority there is to do this thing. So that then, verse 18, so that by these two unchangeable things, which is impossible for God to lie, and he who have fled refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast that, uh, that the hope that is set before us. Verse 19, we have this as a sure and steadfast anchor for the soul, a hope that endures into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner as a, on our behalf, having become a high priest forever. What he's saying here is this. We have these anchors. 
and who God is and what God has done, how has he demonstrated this, and it's been demonstrated in the work of Christ. And the reason we lose hope sometimes, the reason we pull up those anchors, is we forget Jesus. We do. It's not that we forget that he exists, act like he wasn't ever there. It's not that we wipe him from our memory. How do we forget Jesus? Instead, we do something I think is far worse. We forget Jesus by actually distorting his nature, making him something that he isn't, calling him something that he isn't. We change him to fit our situation and our current mindset. Here are some examples of how we do this. We turn, turn Jesus into just a symbol instead of the Savior. Like, okay, Jesus was this guy, that, like, it's just the sa- symbol of Christianity. But he's, we don't actually think of him and remember him as the Savior of my soul. Like that he is the one who found me in the depths of my lostness and saved me. I just, I make him a symbol instead of a Savior. But then we also turn Jesus into rules instead of righteousness. We say, oh, Jesus is, means I can't do this, 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 and this. And we start listing out these things that we have to refrain from and hold back from, and that's what we turn Jesus into, just this set of rules, a new moral authority. Instead of understanding he is the righteousness of God, that he is not telling us what not to do, but how to interact in a right way with this world. The other thing we do, we turn God, Jesus into this genie in a bottle that grants us our every wish instead of literally God in the flesh. We think, you know, if I can say the right words or I can pray enough times or I'll do this, if I do this for Jesus, then he'll do this for me. And we make him this genie in a bottle that grants us our wishes instead of remembering that he is God in the flesh, the creator of this universe who walked and dwelt among us and that he holds immeasurable power and authority. And we can come to him. It boils down to this. We create Jesus in our image instead of remembering that we were made in his image, in the image of God. We try to form him to fit our mold instead of let our lives be formed to fit the mold that he desires for us. And most of us don't do this on purpose. We don't wake up and go, today I'm going to distort the image of Jesus. That's my goal for today. I'm going to walk out and do this. But we fall into this trap of not taking time to remind ourselves how it is that we should respond to who Jesus is. So today I want to look at two stories in the Bible very quickly. They give us two tangible ways that we are to respond physically and tangibly to what God has done. And one helps us to respond and one helps us to remember. So got your Bible, slip over to Acts chapter 8. And uh, this is a great story in the Bible. Some very unique things happen here. But this is uh, after Jesus has come. He's ascended. Crucifixion, resurrection has all happened. And the disciples and the apostles are going out sharing about Jesus. And we'll pick up the story in verse 26 uh, with Philip, who was one of the apostles of Jesus. It says, Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, Rise and go toward the south to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a desert place. And he rose and went, and there was an Ethiopian, a eunuch, a court official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of all of her treasure. He had come to Jerusalem to worship and was returning. He was seated in his chariot and was reading the prophet Isaiah. As the Spirit said to Philip, Go over and join this chariot. So Philip ran to him and heard him saying, reading Isaiah the prophet, and asked, Do you understand what you're reading? 
And the Ethiopian said, How can I unless someone guides me? And he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. Jump down to verse 34. And it says, And then the eunuch said to Philip, About whom, I ask you, does this prophet say this? About himself or someone else? And then Philip opened his mouth and began with the scripture and told him the good news about Jesus. So I I love this story because it's setting up for a way that we're going to respond to Jesus. But it sets up this idea that God puts our path along the path of other people on a regular basis to share the good news of Jesus. That's part of what we're called to do. One of the ways we respond to Jesus is to share the good news, to tell others about it. Not by accident. I mean, I, I can't say what happened to Philip has ever happened in my life. I've never had the Spirit of God speak to me and said, walk south on this road, and eventually you're going to run into this person and go, and they're going to be reading the Bible and just go talk to them. That's never happened in my life. I've had the promptings of the Spirit to do that, but what exactly, what I want to struggle with for a minute, what exactly is this good news that he shared with the Ethiopian? It says when he went to the Scriptures, what is the good news? I want to briefly tell you what is the good news of Jesus. The first is this. This is what I believe Philip shared with him, that Jesus was God in the flesh. The way that they would have taken that word is he was the Messiah. They believed, and I believe, and I believe Scripture teaches, and the the world is testament that Jesus is Messiah. He was God in the flesh to bring salvation for all mankind. But not just that, but as he was on this earth, Jesus lived a sinful life. He lived a completely pure life, did not fall to temptation. He set an example of purity and hope for us. But then third, Jesus demonstrated God's love perfectly to us as well. It's not that he came prideful and angry and said, this is how you should live, follow me or else. He also demonstrated God's love perfectly. And in doing this, it made him blameless. You cannot place blame on him either. Fourth, Jesus' purpose was to provide payment for our sinful rebellion. This is called atonement. He took our debt, and he, his purpose was to come and pay that debt. Jesus willingly sacrificed himself with no demand for repayment. Jesus went to the cross, sacrificed himself, and in doing so, provided sacrifice atoning for our sin. This is called the satisfaction of God. He satisfied God's wrath towards sin, as he did this willingly. And then Jesus overcame sin and the penalty of sin through his resurrection. That's called restoration. He He went to death, took our sin, but he came back pure and blameless again. He was restored, just as we could be. And this satisfaction and restoration are available to all who are willing to surrender and follow Jesus. That's called redemption. That's the good news of Jesus. God in the flesh, sinless life, demonstrated God's love perfectly. He came to be a payment for our sin, willingly sacrificed, and then overcame sin to make restoration and redemption available to all mankind. I believe that's what Philip shared with the Ethiopian. And as he did this, the Ethiopian responded in a very distinct way. Look at verse 36. It says this. Then as they were going along the road, they came to some water. And the eunuch said, See, here is water. What prevents me from being baptized? And he commanded the chariot to stop, and they both went down into the water, Philip and the eunuch, and they baptized him. 
Now, why was baptism the response here? After Philip shared the good news of Jesus, this man believed and was so ready to surrender and follow to Jesus. So why was this immediate response to be baptized? Why didn't he just try to say, hey, I'll start living better. I'll make better decisions. I'll study scripture more. Why baptism? Because baptism is actually the most natural response to what Jesus has done in your life. The Ethiopian realized that until up until that moment, he had been a walking dead man, spiritually. He'd been spiritually dead, and now he had just received new life. All the hope that he had placed in himself, his country, his queen, his job had all been misplaced. And the only hope he now knew made sense was a hope in Jesus. And he wanted to express that in a very tangible, public way, which was baptism. Baptism is a picture of what Christ did. It's only the going down to death and being raised to life. Baptism, a picture of what's happened in our life. I was dead and now I am new in life. Baptism is a picture of the good news for others to see. It's a testimony for what God has did that others can see in us. And it is also a celebration of this new life that we experience and now are connected with other people. It's a, it's a family tradition. It's a way that we connect our lives together. It's a, it's a way that we identify that we belong to Christ. And that's why I believe the Ethiopian said, I want to be baptized. There's new hope in me. There's new life in me. I want to show, I want to demonstrate, I want to express it as I can. Just as Philip shared the good news with him, he immediately wanted to share the good news with other people. That's what baptism is. It's, it doesn't get you into heaven. It's not a rite of passage. It is a step. Just as somebody shared something with me, it's my first step to share good news with other people. I want to challenge you. If you've never been baptized, I want to ask you to consider doing that. If you're a follower of Christ, if, he, if you've placed your faith in him, would you consider taking the step of baptism? At the end of our service, there's a little uh, table over here behind the curtain that just says, I want to be baptized. If you're interested in that, just put your name, an email, or a phone number, and we'll follow up with you on that. It's not something that we do just to say, oh, look at who we... It is a celebration event. And we can talk through how that happens. We've got a baptism service scheduled for April 2nd. Uh, There are lots of different ways that that can happen, but I want to encourage you. If you have never taken that step since you've surrendered your life to Christ, I want to encourage you to be baptized. The other thing that I want us to look at, and we'll close... The service with this is found in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. So if you've got your Bibles, flip over there real quick. And this is the way that we not only respond to Jesus, but it's how we remember who Jesus is. Paul's writing this to a church in Corinthians that uh, had really began to kind of mess up. They started going on a different path, and he kind of begins to rebuke them in verse 17, and he says this, 1 Corinthians eleven seventeen says, But in the following instructions, I do not commend you. Because when you came together, it is not for the better, but for the worse. For in the first place, when you came together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you. And I believe it is in part, for there must be factions among you in order that there are, we can see who is genuine among you may be recognized. When you come together, it is not for the Lord's Supper that you eat. For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. What do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Are you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. And what 
what Paul is saying here to the church is this. Look, you're coming together, you're meeting, you're doing stuff, but you're not really acting like a church. You've forgotten what it means to be a church. Just like he said, we originally forgot who Jesus was, now we've forgotten what it means to be the body of Christ. And they forget, they were coming together, they were doing the acts of church, they were even having the Lord's Supper, but it's crazy what he says. He's like, those of you who get here early, you eat all the food. You drink all the wine, and other people go hungry. Like, two of you go home drunk, two of you go home full, and nobody else gets to celebrate this together. It was, it was insanity. And Paul is saying, this is not what the church is. And we can easily forget that as well. We can forget that we were saved from sin. We can forget that we were in need of grace. We can forget that others need grace. We can forget that we are not the answer, but God is the answer. We can easily forget this. And this is why in verse 23, he says, let me remind you of something. He says, for I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you. He's like, I told you this before, but I'm going to tell you again, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat the bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And so he was reminding them communion is a reminder. It is an object thing that we do, a tangible thing that we do that reminds us that we were once dead in sin and now alive in Christ. That we were once hopeless and now hopeful. That our life has been completely transformed. And when we remember that, then we remember what it actually means to be the church and to be the body of Christ. Communion is, is not how our sins are forgiven. By taking the bread and the, and the wine, it's not that we become new. It's not that it becomes the actual body and blood of Christ. But what it does is it's a, it's a visual and tangible reminder of what God has done. And when we eat it and we take it in, it reminds us that this is something that was done personally for us. It's a way that we experienced it. Communion is for those who have surrendered their life to Christ because as a symbolic remembrance of God's grace, we must first have fully experienced the grace of God. And this is actually the other reason we fail to remember who Jesus is and we stop living out the love and forgiveness and the peace that God has given us. It's because maybe we've been trying to live a Christian life, a good moral life, without actually having ever surrendered our life to Christ. I grew up in church. For the first 14 years of my life, I tried to be a Christian without actually following Christ, actually surrendering to Christ. I just wanted to follow the rules. If I followed the rules enough, I thought that was good enough. And late in my teenage years, God broke into my life and said, I I don't want you to follow my rules. I want to have a relationship with you. I want to know you. I want you to know me. And I realized that all I'd been doing was emptiness compared to what God wanted for me. And so to be a Christ father, there, there's not 16 steps to becoming a Christ father. There's not, you know, do these five things first. It's simple. We've got to admit that there's a God and I'm not it. That's pretty, that's easy for most of us. Like I realize, you know, there's a God out there. I'm not it. I'm not the one in control. But it's not just that. Then I have to acknowledge 
that I have willfully, intentionally rebelled against God and his authority. And when I begin to do that, then what I have to do next is the one act that I must take to follow Christ. I must surrender. I must surrender. Say, God, I'm willing to surrender my heart, my soul, my mind, my strength as a conscious act of my will to the Lordship of Christ. I no longer will be in charge of my life. You will be because you are the ultimate authority. And then in doing that, we seek after Jesus with all that we have to love him and to love others. Acknowledge there's a God. Acknowledge that we have rebelled. Surrender to him and then follow with all your heart. That's what becoming our Christ follower is. That's what we celebrate with communion. That's what baptism is. And so I want to challenge you with a couple questions today. If you're sitting in here and you've never surrendered to Christ, what's keeping you from surrendering? What's holding you back? Do you have questions that have to be answered? This is a place you can ask questions. If you have questions, let's, let's talk about them. And I want to challenge you to not just ask the questions, but engage in the questions. Let God and let others bring some answers. And then secondly, is it the desire of your heart to follow Christ? If God's placed that desire in your heart, I want to challenge you to boldly step in obedience and follow him. So today I want to close our service with a chance to celebrate and remember what Christ has done through communion. If you're a follower of Christ in here, even if you're not a member of this church, you are welcome to come and uh, receive the elements. And the way we do it here, there'll, there'll be a, a, a thin uh, bread cracker, and you can take it and dip it uh, in the juice and then take it as one. We'll have people down here. If you want to pray with someone uh, before you take it, there'll be people available uh, to pray. And so in just a minute, I'm going to pray for us. And after that, the table will be open. We just come uh, one-on-one, come as a family, uh, come with other people that you want to share uh, communion with, but you'll serve yourself. And it's our way. As we take this cracker and we dip it, we remember the broken body of Christ, the blood that was shed for us to bring me from death to life. We join me as we pray.